This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by David Fife, an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and a senior fellow with the Commanding Heights Initiative of Securing America's Future Energy. David was previously a U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs and an editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong. David Fife, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Roger. Well, you're you're known in town, that is in Washington, D.C., for your role in the previous administration, the Trump administration, as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, which is a lot of words to say you're the person who had to deal with the diplomacy and the strategy as related to China. We're going to jump into all of that. People who read the Wall Street Journal for years probably also know you from your time living in Hong Kong, where you worked uh, for the Wall Street Journal and, and at large, but also their Asia publication uh, for years. How long did you do that, do that for, David? I was in Hong Kong for four years, from 2013 to 17. And what was your kind of purview there? So I was out there um, in, a, in, in a great job that I loved uh, as an editorial writer. Uh, writing editorials for the opinion page about uh, Asian issues, generally Asian economics and politics, but with a particular focus on U.S.-China matters, which meant uh, a lot of trade and economics, a lot of the South China Sea and Taiwan and North Korea and other issues as uh, as things got worse in the relationship and, and Xi Jinping made his mark more and more on Chinese politics and, uh, and world affairs. So you were doing this China thing before... It was cool. Uh, sure, it was. Uh, it was uh, a conscious sense that, uh, well, that these things were were important, and that it would be uh, it would be a privilege to go out and uh, and learn something out there, as it was. Now, you and I corresponded during that time a lot, as you were witnessing and reporting on and writing on the Chinese military buildup and their assertion of that new and increased military strength um, in the South China Sea. Is that the most significant thing you saw at that time? Or is there some other kind of seminal moment during your time living in Hong Kong where you're like, wow, the world is changing significantly, but not many have their eyes open to see it? Sure. There, there was really no, no shortage of things on the China beat that were striking in those years and from the vantage point of Hong Kong. Um, you know, we got to see in Hong Kong the increasing strangulation of the liberal institutions of Hong Kong, which represented certain very important things about the direction of Chinese politics, about uh, how Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party uh, don't honor their international commitments. Um, it was a reflection, very different in degree, but nonetheless a, reflect, a reflection, a reflection broadly of the sort of repression that Xi Jinping was intensifying all across China, um, including especially in Xinjiang. It also, of course, was a front row seat to things like the South China Sea uh, ambitions of China, uh, the increasing bullying of all of China's neighbors, the building and the militarization of the artificial islands in the South China Sea in very direct violation of promises that Xi Jinping made you know, in the Rose Garden to President Obama um, but also, it was interesting in a sense for what was harder 
to see, uh, harder to see on the news, and even harder to see, um, you know, for some of us sort of historically and philosophically, which were certain things happening, especially in the trade space and in the technology space. There was a lot of attention on the human rights repression of the Chinese Communist Party, a good deal of attention on their increasing military capabilities and ambitions, their bullying of their neighbors. Um, but I think a lot of us were still waking up to just how economically capable and technologically innovative a system run by a communist party could be. And so that was part of what we were covering at the journal. And I think it was part of what we and others were not covering enough. And we have come only more recently uh, in the last five years or so to have a greater appreciation for. Yeah, innovative economically and, and this hybrid system of kind of autocratic political power and then exploiting uh, the free market economy, which has uh, been kind of the the secret sauce of, uh, of Xi. Hong Kong, of course, as I guess until Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine, the, the story of Hong Kong was the greatest assault on, on freedom. I have to go back since, you know, the Cold War. Did that surprise you after living there, living in Hong Kong, seeing what the Chinese Communist Party was up to? Were you surprised or expected what played out in terms of denying the political rights of Hong Kongers that we see we saw in, in 2018-2019? The extent and speed uh, of the strangulation of Hong Kong that sort of reached its ultimate point in 2020 was surprising. I think even to those of us who were uh, quite pessimistic and critical for many years before then. Uh, it was perfectly clear that the Chinese Communist Party was violating its international commitments made to Britain, filed at the United Nations, made diplomatically over the years, uh, starting around 2010 or even starting around 2003, depending how you want to look at it. It became clear in 2014 uh, during the so-called Umbrella Movement, which was at the time you know, these mass street protests and an occupation of downtown streets in Hong Kong that lasted, uh, you know, more than 75 days. It was clear then that Beijing, especially under Xi Jinping, was going to not only violate its promises, but really show a completely uncompromising position toward the, you know, demands for promised democratic institutions uh, in Hong Kong. But the idea that from 2017 to 2020, you would go in fairly short order into a period where you have political prisoners, where you essentially have you know, peaceful protesters, uh, student leaders of, of, of you know, nonviolent protest movements um, start to be arrested and put away. Um, then you had these massive protests in 2019, uh, some of which were peaceful and some of which were violent as, as, as the, you know, the politics in the city became you know, rather completely untenable. Um, and then, you know, quite likely um, helped along by COVID and by the dynamic of lockdowns, you had the imposition of this national security law in the spring of 2020, which has really turned the place into a police state. And that kind of extinguishing of any semblance of civil liberties, free speech, political rights, and autonomy by 2020 
uh, you know, only 23 years into the promised 50 years of autonomy that Beijing committed to uh, in the 1980s before they handed, before they received sovereignty back from the British in the 1990s was a surprise. And I think that surprise reflects, frankly, a lot of the, the surprise that different audiences around the world have had in looking at China, the sense that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are more ambitious, more hostile to liberal principles, um, more assertive and more risk accepting in you know, moving out in many different directions uh, against, uh, you know, the human rights of, you know, of, of their own population uh, and certainly against the interests of their neighbors of the United States. And, th and that's what's so shocking about it. What China is doing within its own borders, you mentioned earlier, Xinjiang province, the Uyghur population, of course, the genocide um, taking place there. And then there's a transnational element, which Hong Kong is more complicated to say it's, you know, the equivalent of Ukraine uh, in terms of their sovereignty. But this extinguishing of freedom in a place that at least had, you know, one country, two systems, and that was the agreement, um, is, is so surprising. Let me ask you this. In, in, in When you think about Xi and the Chinese Communist Party and the way they look at Hong Kong, and what happened there, and with all the discussion and focus on Taiwan about what may happen there, is it kind of like the way Vladimir Putin tested out Georgia or even Crimea 2008, 2014, and now, of course, is waging war in Ukraine? Is that what Hong Kong is for Xi and the Chinese Communist Party? What can we get away with in Hong Kong? Okay, we've learned those lessons. The world, as you just outlined, tolerated it, or to they didn't tolerate it, they couldn't stop it. Next up, Taiwan. Is, is that a, you know, a, an appropriate way to think about it, or, or are those apples and oranges, Hong Kong and Taiwan? Yes and no. I, I think that they, they share certain characteristics in common, as you suggested, you know, they share the the probing instinct of the ambitious revisionist power, uh, seeing how much they can get away with either domestically or in their neighborhood or vis-a-vis you know, -vis the West. Um, certainly in that sense, there's a, a certain degree of commonality. Um, and yet there are certain very substantial differences between Hong Kong and Taiwan, between their legal status, their diplomatic status, the degree of Western commitment to each. Um, and so I think, you know, broadly, it's useful and, and analytically um, revealing to talk about how they do have elements in common, including uh, the sort of boundary breaking activities of Beijing and these constant tests of um, of U.S. and allied interests. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's the way to pursue it. I mean, what did Xi learn from the extinguishing of freedom in Hong Kong and the creation of this police state there that is transferable, applicable to whatever he may be planning vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan? I think she learned that uh, he has a uh, quite free hand at home to uh, to repress 
Chinese citizens, uh, and even when that's broadly defined to include, you know, the citizens of Hong Kong who were promised autonomy in a fashion distinct from the rest of the mainland. And I think there are connections between the sort of impunity with which Beijing was able to move against Hong Kong in, say, the years 2010 to 2017, and some of the more aggressive actions that Beijing began to take in Xinjiang beginning in 2017, like with the mass rounding up of Uyghurs into detention camps. Um, the lessons uh, that I think relate to Taiwan, there are certain distinctions uh, that I think are really important and are lasting around things like the US has had long-term defense commitments to, to Taiwan. This is not an Article 5 you know, allied commitment akin to NATO or akin to our alliance with Japan and others in Asia, but it, they are defense commitments. They derive from you know, the Taiwan Relations Act. They've been a matter of presidential interest ever since. None of that was ever the case with Hong Kong. But I think the kind of discomfort and the kind of um, immaturity of the U.S. diplomatic and economic sanctions playbook as it applied to Hong Kong does run the risk of suggesting to Beijing that we have a certain immaturity in our planning when it comes to potential diplomatic, political, economic type sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Now, I think that's changed over recent years as we've become much more serious about you know, recognizing the need for diplomatic and economic uh, you know, restrictions on our China relationship. I think that's changed at least somewhat in light of Ukraine, where we've seen obviously unprecedented degrees of US and allied uh, economic coercion. But the basic risk that Xi Jinping has been able to aggress in various directions with impunity, and that could make him uh, confident or overconfident with respect to Taiwan, is a real concern. So let's move to Ukraine. You were just noting that the diplomatic and economic sanctions and what's transpired in response to Russia's war in Ukraine, you know, could be impacting calculus from Beijing. It's obviously an area of, of great interest and debate among Chinese, China experts, among experts in, in national security strategy, thinking about how the United States ought to manage our interests in Europe and at the same time remain very focused and vigilant as it relates to China and what China is doing in, in the Indo-Pacific region and, and the world as a whole. David, you're a watcher of Xi and you're a watcher of the Chinese Communist Party. When they look at Russia's war in Ukraine, when they look at the relationship with Vladimir Putin, clearly before this war, they were, you know, full on in support, the 5,000 word statement prior to the Beijing Olympics, noting that their countries could have no limits. What is the outlook as best you can tell? Um, that Beijing and Xi has with respect to Russia's war on Ukraine? What do they have to gain? What do they have to lose by this emerging axis between the two countries? Well, there, there has been really no signal now in about five weeks of the Ukraine war that Xi Jinping is doing anything other than standing by his man in Vladimir Putin. As you noted, uh, on the eve of the war, on the 4th of February, the beginning of the Beijing Olympics, 
three weeks before what became uh, the beginning of, uh, of Putin's um, expanded invasion. They signed this 5,000 words, uh, no limit pact. And they, they said you know, very explicitly that this was uh, a pact that was meant to have, uh, to have no limits, to transcend uh, regular uh, you know, uh, Cold War style alliances, which is their language for deriding the US alliance network. And this was done before we saw the extent of Putin's Ukraine invasion, but months after Putin had begun massing forces uh, all around Ukraine. Yeah, you had over 100,000, approaching 200,000 forces on the border at the time of the statement. That's right. And, and, and we've seen, obviously, um, you know, reports from, from U.S. officials um, about how the request was made to Putin that he delay his military action until after the Olympics had concluded. So there's just not any real uh, believable sense that Beijing was not on board or was surprised by what Putin did. Now, there is reason to assume that Xi Jinping would have assessed the situation roughly as Vladimir Putin would, assuming probably that it would be easy, it would be successful. Not that Putin would stumble as terribly as he clearly has. So the actual course of Putin's war over the last four or five weeks is almost certainly a concern for Beijing. But it is not a concern that has yet signaled that Xi Jinping has any plan to cut Putin loose. In fact, over the course of the weeks of the war, they've come further into alignment. They have aligned their propaganda and disinformation. They have uh, strengthened out of Beijing their degree of diplomatic and rhetorical support at the United Nations in capitals around the world for not condemning Putin or uh, actually turning attention aggressively toward blaming the United States, saying that all of this is a result of American NATO expansion, for example. Um, we've seen, obviously, again, leaks from US officials that not only has Vladimir Putin made requests for material support uh, from China, but that China is considering those requests. And that is entirely believable. Now, we haven't yet seen any uh, you know, large-scale material contributions of, say, uh, you know, military, uh, you know, systems or or, or platforms, you know, restocking or providing them whatever they're, you know, they need more of, given the pace exactly. of this conflict. Exactly. But 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 we are seeing, uh, you know, that fundamentally this was an effort, you know, underwritten at the political and strategic level by a partnership where Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have an enormous amount in common when it comes to seeing the, you know, the West led by the United States as their foe. And, you know, a lot of observers in Washington and elsewhere over the years have pointed out all the reasons why China and Russia would never really be able to cooperate closely. You know, they would bump into each other with competing interests in Central Asia. They would bump into each other with competing interests in Russia's own Far East, where you know, there's no Russian population, but there's a lot of Chinese settlers who might want to go. And they've had historical fights over Vladivostok. And, you know, maybe Putin would never suffer the indignity of being the junior partner 
in a relationship like this. All of those are reasonable, historical, theoretical concerns. It's just that over 10 years of actually accumulating evidence, they have not appeared to put any real restrictions on their actual cooperation. And their cooperation has really come together in the last several months, not only in Ukraine and on the world stage, even in Kazakhstan before that, sure. where you know, worked together in an amazingly sort of smooth fashion to help the Kazakh uh, strongman put down what would have been another, what was beginning to be a popular uprising. And so this degree of support looks very intense, and it really looks to hearken the beginning of a, of a new Cold War that all of us have to reckon with. Right, new and, and quite different. We'll get into those differences. But just to stay with this for a moment before we move on to the bilateral relationship between China and the United States, which you're so expert in and and, and uh, spent time thinking about, writing about, you know, this war has obviously gone ba- ble- excuse me, badly for Vladimir Putin. Uh, measured uh, in their strategic aims, they have not successfully held a Ukrainian city as of the date of this recording. Killed in action, thousands, right? Up, some reports up to 10,000 Russian soldiers killed on the battlefield. Even if you take off 10 or 20%, it still would be greater than lives, Russian lives lost on the battlefield in Afghanistan, for example. Gone badly for Putin. But just to stay with a similar analysis you've provided, but get a little more focused on the conflict in Ukraine, does that translate as going bad for Xi? I mean, to me, it's he's learning. That is, China's learning about how you go about engaging these conflicts, right, from a tactical level to strategic level. Regardless of the outcome, it's distracting the United States and the West to focus on the continent. And conflict goes on. And to me, what's the difference, you know, from a from a Xi's standpoint, if you supported Putin when he was killing hundreds of civilians or thousands of civilians, is is there any reason no longer to back him once those thousands to turns into tens of thousands? He's already kind of in bed with with this Putin aggression and all the consequences. So can this thing actually get bad for Xi in a way that it hasn't done already? And the upside to me seems more substantial from the geopolitical outlook that you you share with us. I think, as you suggest, there's a lot of upside for Xi Jinping, which explains why he's been uh, not only acting as he has over the last five weeks, um, but over the months before and really going back 10 years. You know, Xi Jinping made a project from his very first months in office as China's leader of cultivating Vladimir Putin and their bilateral relationship and cultivating the, the, the types of you know, shared grievances and revisionist ambitions that they have clearly had from the beginning that a lot of us in the West were slow to notice over the years. Now we've noticed them. As you say, uh, the more that uh, Russia forces American and allied attention to focus on Europe, this could redound very significantly to Xi Jinping's benefit. Um, There are, I think, some countervailing factors here. Uh, Xi Jinping has real reason to value his relationship with Europe. And he has invested over years in trying to keep Europe uh, on his side, or at least at a certain sort of equidistant point between, say, Washington and Beijing, to put it 
crudely. And his support for Putin is hurting him in that regard. These are not the first decisions that Xi Jinping has made that have hurt him in Europe. This has actually been rising for a few years. You know, Xi Jinping, by you know, perpetrating the genocide in Xinjiang, has hurt himself in Europe. When he faced sanctions from Europe, uh, almost just at the symbolic European Parliament level in 2021, Beijing responded with counter sanctions against European politicians. This hurt Beijing in Europe. Uh, these are real factors. We've started to see real effects of that in Germany, for example, where the sort of corporatist approach that Berlin took uh, toward China for years throughout the entire uh, Merkel chancellorship seems to have cracked. And we'll have to see how decisively and how dramatically, but it's shifted a bit. And so Xi Jinping is suffering some costs here. Uh, but I think that, as you say, there's real risk that it nets in his favor. It can net in his favor also because, you know, to the degree that Russia becomes a dependency of his entirely uh, sort of at his mercy and a source for energy resources that he appreciates. And I would just underscore that we're only four and a half weeks into this thing. And right. the development in Ukraine is entirely ahead of us. And you know, the heroism of the Ukrainians has been you know, striking and admirable and exhilarating. And yet, you know, and now they're gaining background, but these are still early innings potentially. And so the prospect that Xi Jinping, that rather Vladimir Putin can brazen it out, potentially escalate and brazen it out, uh, all of that means that I think mostly the signals that Ukraine will hold for China broadly, for Taiwan in particular, are still ahead of us and to be determined. Yeah, and it hasn't certainly played out. Go ahead, finish the point. I think I think the deterrent signal from Washington is also, you know, very much still uncertain. Uh, I think, you know, on the one hand, we have shown a greater fluency, a greater ability ourselves and with our allies to fashion economic sanctions and technology restrictions, to impose them on Russia, and to more credibly threaten them against China in future scenarios. That's real progress. At yeah. the same time, we've signaled, for example, that we are uh, extremely constrained about anything that would be direct engagement with the Russian military, because they're a nuclear armed force. Of course, so is China. And so the way that Xi Jinping might read this when he has decisions to make over Taiwan is, I think, still uncertain and is certain, is, is not at all necessarily in the favor of peace in Asia. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Uh, President Biden, I don't think it was a good decision. We made it very clear from the outset that we will not, the United States, under any circumstances, have boots on the ground, which is essentially a euphemism for what you've just described, that we will not engage in any direct conflict with Russia, either you know, how we define the national interest or because it's another nuclear power. And, of course, there is applicability to how Xi might interpret that as it relates to U.S. commitments uh, to Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion uh, in Taiwan. Uh, you know, a couple more things I want to migrate to just the, the bilateral relationship. You mentioned the, the German case. I mean, I think, yes, economically, it's a hugely important trading relationship for China. I mean, it's, if you combine, what is it, Germany, the Netherlands, and, and the UK, stack them up together. UK, of course, not in the EU, but just European countries. You know, they'd be the third largest trading partner uh, for, for, for China, right? After, I guess, it would be the United States 
and uh, Japan or Hong Kong there. So uh, a lot at stake. That's a good example of the vulnerability, what's at risk in terms of Xi's support of Putin. At the same time, however the conflict ends, I mean, it's pretty clear the way the Europeans respond. They may want to keep forces in U.S. forces in Europe, they might want to increase their def defense budget and hold there, but they absolutely would want to get the trading relationship back, and, and you probably would want to take that uh, to the bank whenever, whenever the conflict uh, would resolve or, 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 or remain frozen. Let me ask you one more thing, David, um, as it relates to Ukraine. A lot of the discussion at the outset was should the, how involved should the United States be? Can they be? We got to keep our eye on the ball with respect to China. This, this notion that somehow the United States has to either be committed to dealing with a China challenge or something else, but you can't do both or more than one thing. As someone who's been one of the chief advocates and architects of what we need to do politically, economically, but also militarily with respect to China, do you find anything persuasive about this argument that, well, uh, we just have to choose here, people. The United States can only afford to focus on one big challenge. Well, I think the the logic and the, the imperative of choices and prioritization uh, is strong. And we certainly need better prioritization uh, going forward when it comes to our defense spending, the role of China in our defense strategy and planning. But the absolute need for sharper priorities, priorities more informed by the fact that our primary national security threat is China, doesn't necessarily mean that we get to make you know, all choices always, and we don't have imperatives of national security thrust upon us, including inconvenient ones, uh, including a threat you know, to uh, you know, not only a devastating land war, but a potential you know, direct threat to NATO in Europe. So you know, we have interests that obviously extend beyond China and Asia. We have major interests in Europe. We have major interests in the Middle East. Part of the sort of logic of this emerging new Cold War is that there is cooperation among states that wish us ill, who look collectively to you know, China in, in different ways, but nonetheless, for guidance and for support. That obviously includes the Kremlin. It obviously includes Iran. And it means that these are uh, not going away as problems. Yeah, and they, they play on each other. And it would you know, seem to me it would, it would be defeating not only for our interests in Europe, but actually for our, our interests vis-a-vis -vis China to, to somehow be regionally bound and, 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 and kind of outsource the security interest, which would be our interest, to other parties. Um, to that point, um, yeah, a former colleague of yours, Matt Pottinger, Deputy National Security Advisor, during the Trump administration, former Wall Street Journal reporter um, who, who covered China, used the analogy of the Korean War here, which to me really captured perfectly, I want to get your, your take uh, and your comments, in terms of the interplay between Russia and China, as well as how we think about uh, this Cold War analogy 
And in the Korean War, he says that Xi is playing the role of Stalin, right? And Putin is playing the role of Mao. That is to say, in the Korean War, of course, it was uh, Stalin was almost the playing chess, and Mao uh, was, of course, deploying, you know, uh, the, the Chinese troops and engaging the armed conflict. And that's what's playing out with Ukraine right now, both in terms of conflict, but more broadly, you know, who's the who's the heavy in this relationship? Again, give me your take on that analogy, uh, why you think or don't think it's sound, but also to show how the geopolitics here are so integrated, right? And, and something that can happen in Europe is actually highly relevant and impacting what's happening uh, in the Indo-Pacific or China. That's right. No, the, the analogy is uh, is almost uncanny. Uh, as, as you note, you know, the roles of China and Russia are reversed, but otherwise the similarity is striking. Ukraine today looks like you know, the hot opening salvo of a Cold War where you have a uh, a first you know proxy you know military battle between the uh, the authoritarian uh, camp and the democratic camp, and in the case of the Korean War, this of course began in June 1950. Right, Mo Sung from the north invades the south with the support of Mao and the blessing of Stalin. And South Korea had been left outside the defensive perimeter of the West by our then Secretary of State in a way that is quite analogous to how Ukraine is outside of the military defensive perimeter of the United States and our allies in Europe via NATO. You have the fact that the aggressors in the Korean War, the communist bloc, underestimated how bloody and difficult it would be, just as the aggressor in Putin today clearly underestimated, as did his sponsor in Xi Jinping, how difficult it would be for Russia in Ukraine. You could have in the outcome also an analogous situation where you know, you have nuclear brinkmanship. Uh, we can hope it's no more than brinkmanship with the possibility of some kind of a stalemate and some kind of a divided Ukraine. We, of course, already live with the divided Ukraine given 2014. And, you know, it appears that there's a certain uh, high likelihood that that's at least going to be part of the outcome in Ukraine going forward. One very important difference, uh, or really actually potential echo and similarity with the Korean War analogy to today is still ahead of us. And the question is essentially about us and the West, which is that in the first example, in the Korean War, that war brought to public consciousness and to official policy the recognition of the Cold War and of the Soviet threat that before 1950 had not been the prevailing view. It had been a view articulated by people like Winston Churchill at his uh, you know, Westminster College speech and you know, the Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri, but it had not been the accepted view in policy in Washington and among our allies. That changed very quickly with the Korean War. Our defense spending went up something like triple across the uh, Truman years after the Korean War. Truman took the NSC 68 strategy, which had been drafted in the spring of 1950. It had been placed on the shelf. He took it off the shelf once the Korean War began in the summer of 1950. 
And I think the question of whether our response to Ukraine, in light of what we've been saying for several years about China and its threat uh, to our interests, is a key test going forward. Will yeah. we respond with as much of a significant positive shift in our policy that fulfills this analogy back to the Korean War? Uh, great point. And uh, early indications are that we're not responding to that moment, at least as reflected in the administration's, Biden administration's uh, strategy, and certainly their investment in our national defense. Um, I know you're trying to outflank me and my defense hawkishness by, I just simply call for 5% real growth in defense spending. Would you add inflation? That would be 13% growth. And David, I know you're, you're advocating for a double. I, I hope you win, but I fear that we both will lose. Certainly, the early indications of what we're going to see out of this administration. Let, let's move. Well, by the way, just on, on that, I, I, would just, I would just observe that, you know, the details matter, and the details obviously matter for, you know, the responsible stewardship of the taxpayer dollar. They matter for the responsible, you know, making of our defense strategy and our procurement plans and our posture plans and all the rest. It is, though, notable that today we are around three and a half percent of uh, uh, of GDP spent on defense. That is a historically low figure, and it's a low figure if we look back at uh, at Cold War history, where for many periods during the Cold War we were at double that or even more. And so it certainly appears that not only in light of Ukraine over the last you know, several weeks, but China over the last several years, it, it, it behooves us to consider you know, with a proper historical sense what might be the uh, proper you know, quantum of spending, even apart from our sort of you know, immediate political challenges on spending that we you know, deal with month to month. A hundred percent. I mean, you're provoking me here, David, but suffice to say, I agree. There are two moments here that really would require this type of robust response. One is what we're discussing, China, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but the second is inflation. And we're, we're failing to, to meet both moments. And you're right, even if we were to do the, take on the approach that you're advising, it, by historical standards, it actually would, would, would be appropriate and not without precedent. L let's move to the bilateral relationship because it is so complex. And, and we talk about the Cold War, the Cold War analogy. Even those who want to wave the we're back in a Cold War flag would acknowledge that it is just so different. And the most important difference, I think, is this economic integration and the economic strength of China, meaning we are so heavily integrated economically. We are... Uh, China's most important trading partner, and China is our most important trading partner. Just think about what that means. And it's just, we rely on each other for our economies to grow and to be successful. There's no other way to put it. The, the, the numbers here just don't lie. David, you are somebody who is thinking every day about how we prevail in our competition with China. That is, how do we preserve the peace and the prosperity we enjoy? And you're 
correct if I'm wrong, but your assumption is to maintain the peace and to maintain our prosperity, we're going to have to disentangle this relationship in certain fundamental ways. How do you even think through this problem set when China exports to us over just about $500 billion a year, right? I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing in terms of the dependency and the integration. Take us through that, and then we'll get to the kind of the different sectors. Well, you know, we've learned in recent years that China is not a normal trading partner, not only obviously in the magnitude of the relationship, which you've pointed to, but more importantly, in the way that the Chinese Communist Party uses its trade and economic relationships. China weaponizes these relationships. The Chinese Communist Party weaponizes the dependencies of other countries on trade with them. And actually, Xi Jinping is increasingly open about this. You know, this was demonstrated over the last 10 years, let's say, in ways that were initially more subtle, more limited, and, you know, deniable and denied by Beijing, you know, where they would put rare earth uh, export restrictions on Japan because of a political dispute and pretend they didn't. Or they would put restrictions on South Korea over a dispute over U.S. missile defense on the Korean Peninsula and pretend they didn't. Philippine bananas, there are many examples. This started to become naked and even admitted by Beijing in recent years, especially in the case of Australia, where Beijing became uh, upset with various things that Australia was doing to harden their society against interference by the Chinese Communist Party. And Beijing first made certain demands of Australia, including you know, literally that Australia limit the freedom of press at home to criticize China. When Australia you know, said no thanks, uh, Beijing imposed these very aggressive uh, trade restrictions on, on Australia. We all saw it with COVID and the kind of PPE coercion that we lived with and, and had to be made fearful of. But well, we relied on them for these basic products that were essential to us to survive the pandemic, right? That's, That's right. And, and one of the most notable shifts in the rhetoric of Xi Jinping since COVID, he began make, making a certain message domestically to his own leadership around May of 2020. And then this became public, you know, translated by the Chinese Communist Party and published at the end of 2020. It then was written fairly openly, although with some translation tricks, written fairly openly into the five-year plan of the Chinese Communist Party published in March of 2021. The idea that China would explicitly seek what is sometimes called the dual circulation strategy, what is sort of more properly understood as a kind of offensive decoupling, where they will use what Xi Jinping calls the powerful gravitational force of the Chinese economy to make others more dependent on China while systematically seeking to make China less dependent on any other countries, where China would continue to import certain things from overseas, but those things would be non-strategic, so not things like semiconductors, if they can fix that, and those things would always be substitutable. So that if China wants to have a fight with Australia, they can import instead some ag from Brazil or from the United States. Xi Jinping has been open about this in a fashion that ought to be setting off alarms, and I think has begun to set off alarms in the United States, in Europe, and elsewhere 
that although it will be difficult and disruptive, there is an enormous economic and national security imperative in, in fact, making us less dependent on them, less vulnerable to their future coercion, which they've said will come. So let me just, this offensive decoupling approach, just to kind of translate and make sure I understand it, we're importing, that is, the United States is importing, you know, it's half a trillion dollars annually, roughly more, give or take, tens of billions from China. She is betting that we will only increase our dependency or sustain the dependency on that and will simply dare us, that is the United States, to try to cut ourselves off because we'll have no other place to go. I mean, that that's the strategy. Isn't that the strategy we want to impose on them? Well, there happen to be certain areas of sort of strategic technology recognition that are shared in a way between Western governments and the Chinese Communist Party. For example, the recognition that semiconductors are you know, so important, probably the most important uh, technology of the future, because it's the fundamental building block of almost everything else. Everything, uh, quantum, artificial intelligence, big data, these are all downstream of semiconductor computing power. The West has come to recognize this partly because China was ahead of us. Right. You know, Xi Jinping started to talk about big data in 2013, telling the Chinese Academy of Sciences that whoever controls big data will be able to have the upper hand in future competition. The Made in China 2025 strategy of Beijing released in 2015 made very explicit goals for the indigenous production of semiconductors and the capturing of global market share. That is partly significant though, because that is an area where Beijing today does not have advantage. The advantage is mostly in Taiwan, where some 92% of advanced semiconductors are made and a very large majority of semiconductors broadly are still made, well, actually are made, you know, really because of the phenomenons of supply chains as they've crystallized over the last 10 years. In semiconductor input technology, the U.S. is still the world leader with Dutch and Japanese players and South Korean players also playing major roles. In none of these areas is China today the leader. It's why Xi Jinping has been so explicit. He's made his chief economic aide, Liu He, in charge of semiconductor strategy. It's part of the Taiwan dynamic, obviously, because Xi Jinping might think that if he moves militarily on Taiwan and is successful, he might be able to absorb the enormous value of the semiconductor supply chain that is in Taiwan. But Xi Jinping is also trying to get there without Taiwan, through domestic subsidies at home, through theft, through the work of yeah, I mean, one question that is a very important policy question for Washington and our allies is how extensive should our trade relationship in semiconductors, which is a very important part of the large relationship that you mentioned, be? Right now, our technology restrictions on exports to China are basically limited to the cutting edge, to semiconductor chips and the software and tools that are involved in the fabrication of chips that are typically like 14 nanometers and even smaller. So it's the more sophisticated stuff. The more sophisticated stuff. That still leaves open China's ability to import from us and to improve their ability to produce semiconductors at many other you know, parts of the of, of, of the supply of, of the value chain. Yeah, most of our weapon systems don't use 14 nanometer chips. They're higher, right? Exactly. Larger. Partly because weapon systems take years to, to come online and the cutting edge stuff couldn't possibly be immediately plugged into weapon systems. And so right now we have an export relationship with China, where we're sending them enormous amounts of 
you know, productive semiconductor uh, technology. It's extremely important for American industry. But there are folks on Capitol Hill, for example, you know, Congressman Mike McCall and others who are raising alarms about this and saying, actually, this might be an invitation to China to do to the semiconductor sector at all levels except the most cutting edge what they've done to so many other manufacturing sectors, which is to use industrial policy and other means to, you know, gain market share and be able to hold it over us. And if they can hold over us the production of semiconductors at, you know, all nodes except the most cutting edge in the same way that they have, for example, the control of solar supply chain, electric vehicle battery supply chain, that would be a form of global economic power for Beijing uh, of unprecedented scale and enormous threat. On, on all things that we need for, for our economic future or the future of our economy. That's right. uh, we're going to jump to the lightning round here in just a minute. But David, you were just chat, talking about semiconductors and, and Beijing's view and how Taiwan plays into it. It seems entirely clear to me that Xi's play with respect to Taiwan even if you just look through the lens of semiconductors, which as you just outlined, kind of so much of what our future looks like depends on having the control of the fabs and where these semiconductors are manufactured. He needs to be, that is, he needs to be in Taiwan either to have that capacity for China or <laughs> just to spoil the supply for the West and the United States. Either way, the Taiwan scenario is far more than a kind of security challenge or a, even a competition over values and freedom. I mean, fundamentally, this is about owning uh, the future of technology. Am I overstating it? I don't know. I mean, the stakes for Taiwan uh, in terms of, uh, you know, 23 million self-governing people in terms for, of U.S. Uh, alliance credibility have always been enormous. But what has changed in the last 10 years, especially five years, is that the Taiwan question is now a question absolutely of whether Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party get to hold the rest of the world economically hostage through, as you say, either control of or a kind of sabotage of global semiconductor supply chains. And you know, those supply chains depend on inputs from the United States, again, from Japan, from the Netherlands, it wouldn't be easy at all for Xi Jinping to simply capture them and expect them to be an asset that he can enjoy. But as you say, the possibility that he might uh, want to take the chance, uh, the possibility that he might think that he could, uh, you know, essentially be, you know, make China the last man standing, because if, if you know, the semiconductor value chain in, in Taiwan is destroyed, a lot of the rest of the global manufacturing capability is in China. Uh, is a real risk and a risk that requires all of us to pay a lot of attention to all this. Fascinating discussion. Let's move to the lightning round. David Fife, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, one of the most significant China watchers and, and, and thinkers about the bilateral relationship and our security interests in the Indo-Pacific region. Share with us now your favorite book on Reagan, favorite Reagan speech, and or favorite Reagan quote, we got about a minute and a half. Uh, I'll try to be quick. On, on the book side, I'd point to Peter Schweitzer's victory, uh, especially on the economic competition with the Soviet Union, uh, the amazingly important work of, of people like Roger Robinson in the Reagan White House, uh, pressing on the Soviet gas pipeline, 
something that obviously is resonant in light of Nord Stream, but also in light of uh, export control and technology competition with China. Um, on the speech, I would point to, I think, a favorite of yours, Roger, the, uh, the Westminster Address, which not only laid out you know, the importance of the creation of institutions like the National Endowment for Democracy and the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute, but there are real lessons in there for China, not only in the question of whether we need expanded or new institutions like that to focus on things like religious freedom, freedom of speech, uh, the responsible use of data, including in the hands of governments. Um, but Reagan in the Westminster speech had amazingly clever uh, sort of subversive lines about reciprocity in the U.S.-Soviet relationship that I think we can also go to school on in the China relationship when it comes to trade and other matters. Um, and do we have time for a quote that is not Give about the quote? It's great. Yes. The quote uh, that I point to is on uh, is from Reagan's farewell address. Uh, I think one of many that, that we get to at least in part thank Peggy Noonan for um, where Reagan decided to focus on civic education, which uh, which seems uh, every bit as important now as it was then. He talked about he said, we've got to teach history based not on what's in fashion, but what's important. If we forget what we did, we won't know who we are. A warning of an eradication of the American memory that could result ultimately in an erosion of the American spirit. Let's start with some basics, more attention to American history and a greater emphasis on civic ritual. And then there's this Reagan, very Reaganite ending. He says, let me offer lesson number one about America. All great change in America begins at the dinner table. So tomorrow night in the kitchen, I hope the talking begins. And children, if your parents haven't been teaching you what it means to be an American, let them know and nail them on it. That would be a very American thing to do. <laughs> David Feist, thank you for sharing that and joining the show. We look forward to having you back on in the future. Thanks a lot, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Thank you.